welcome back. This is episode 87, and this is a blog post series where I go over a blog post series that we have written on our blog, utkmblog.com. So the particular one I'm going to be going over uh, today is called Doomed to Repeat. It was written by Petra Forrester. She's a UTKM uh, instructor, assistant instructor, soon to be blue belt, judo black belt, BJJ blue belt. She's been with us for about five years, and if you want to get to know her a little bit better, you can go back to episode 85, and you can get to know her personality, and we kind of discussed this stuff a little bit. Um, the posts specifically that we I'm going to go over that she wrote, so all the commentary in between uh, her posts is my commentary, not hers. Uh, what she wrote is hers, so uh, don't get what I'm saying mixed up with her saying, because, you know, legal reasons, etc., um, but it's related. So the first one is doomed to repeat growing up in East Germany, our history. Then the second one of the series is doomed to repeat growing up in East Germany, our education. Uh, third one is doomed to repeat growing up in East Germany, our surveillance. Fourth one was doomed to repeat growing up in East Germany, our resistance. And doomed to repeat growing up in East Germany, our future. So I did actually ask her, to write these posts or something along these posts because um, there's a cultural war going on, to be honest, and uh, many people pretend like it's not going on. So the reason why you don't think it's going on is because you're basically living your life, not paying attention, you're not anywhere on the internet. But there is definitely some sort of culture war going on, and both sides have some valid points. However, a trend towards extreme centralized socialism or communism is a trend that I do not support. And if you talk to anyone who grew up in a communist or socialist, or, and I'm going to talk about fascism, fascistic country, they all say the same thing. I don't want to ever have to go back to that. There's a reason I left. Um, so I wanted her perspective on growing up in East Germany during when it was still under uh, the communist USSR rule and as subsequent as it fell a little bit. Um, but before I get more into that, let's talk about this podcast is brought to you by Urban Tactics Kramaga, turning lambs into lions since 2013. So if you like the content, uh, you can support us in many ways. You can go to utkmblog.com uh, and click on the support us link. And there you can donate money to us to provide you with more content because the less I have to do other stuff the more time I can focus on content and you can also go to www.utkmu.com if you want to see our curriculum so utkmu.com is where you can go to see our curriculum in video format uh, it has our white belt beginner curriculum and our novice curriculum. The advanced curriculum is still a work in progress, and there will be some restrictions on to who can access that in the future anyways. So that is more of a supplementary site. Whether you are a practitioner, or you want to learn, or you want supplemental information, or you're an instructor who wants a different perspective, get a month's pass, take a look, study it, or get a year's pass. You can look at it uh, and come back for reference, etc., uh, that way you get something for your money that's more tangible as opposed to just donating to us so we can 
continue providing you with content especially after covid really we really took a hit so anything is helpful thank you and if you want to follow us and support us for free you can of course uh, follow us on instagram urban tactics krav maga facebook urban tactics krav maga and twitter urban tactics km now if you're in the metro vancouver area and you want to come train with us www.urbantacticskm.com and that will get, allow you to either add to our waiting list because we're uh, backlogged at the moment as I'm recording this uh, mid-July and or sign up if it's open when you come and you will go through our process and you can learn to defend yourself and, and something I should say I know not everyone likes it but for me self-defense is not just physical it's mental it's societal it's political you need to educate yourself to the best of your abilities both physically mentally strategically everything so that you have the best possible chance to have a happy healthy life walk in peace and pass off your genes as nature intended um, so that's kind of my approach i know it's not for everyone but you will learn and be a better person for it if you stick with it just a thing uh, i believe that's it for that because it's mainly me talking for this one. Yay for a few hours. So enjoy. And I'm going to say that this one is going to be a little dense as with some of the blog post series because I'm delving into history. So here we go. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. The Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. So I thought I would start off with some definitional things because there's always a lot of confusion. So uh, as Petra will spell out, uh, when uh, Germany fell in World War II, Germany was split into two. The Eastern Bloc being taken over by the USSR Russians and the Western being taken over by the Allied forces. And I believe there was some sort of Berlin was separated, etc. <coughs> I'll get into it a bit more after that. But it's important to understand that for uh, up until the fall of the Berlin Wall, which uh, was fairly recently, actually, in 1989, so it's, I was uh, two years old when it fell, so fairly recently in my lifetime, uh, you basically had Western Germany that was uh, capitalistic and open free market relatively to German culture, which I don't actually know too much about the specifics of German culture, etc. Uh, and East Germany, which was under communist regime. You can guess which one fared better. No shocker there. But let's, let's take a few look at some definitions. I'm going to look at the fascist definitions, communist definition, and socialism. Because often people get them muddled and they mix them up and this one's bad because of this and people focus on fascism because of Hitler because he's the most famous uh, of all the dictators but communism has killed more people by a long shot and I'll talk about Stalin and Mao after and so the idea that people uh, and organizations are drawing towards communism and Marxist ideology uh, I'll talk about Karl Marx as well uh, is deeply disturbing because it's never worked out so let me just go over some definitions first so uh, i'm going to draw from uh, merriam-webster dictionary uh wikipedia and i believe dictionary.com 
uh, later on. Now, I just want to point out Merriam-Webster uh, dictionary seems to be quite woke. So they tend to play up the fascism and play down the communism. So let's just say fascism as according to Merriam-Webster dictionary. Fascism. Now, definition of fas fascism. One, often capitalized, a political philosophy, movement, or regime such as that of that fascist, the exalts nation and often race above the individual, and that stands for centralized autocratic government headed by dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation, and forcible suppression of opposition. Two, tendency towards actual exercise or strong autocratic dictatorial control. I would just like to say them talking about the race thing is often what people focus on because that's what Hitler did. Uh, Mussolini created fascism in Italy, and they didn't really care that much about that. It was more of a military dictatorship. Uh, now let's talk about what Wikipedia says about fascism. So fascism from Wikipedia is a form of far-right authoritarian uh, ultra-nationalism, right? So the nationalism thing is definitely... But the race thing is uh, it's been added in later on, I think. Anyways, continuing. Characterized by dictatorial power, forcible suppression of opposition, and strong regimentation of society and of the economy, which came to prominence in the early 20th century. The first fashion, fascist movement emerged in Italy during World War I before spreading to other European countries. Opposed to liberalism, democracy, Marxism, and anarchism, Fascism is placed on the far right within the traditional left-right spectrum. Although I would say it's a full circle in the end, as soon as it goes to authoritarianism, it's all the same crap, with slight technical differences. Continuing, fascists saw World War I as a revolution that brought massive changes to the nature of war, society, the state, and technology. The advent of total war and the total mass mobilization of society had broken down the distinction between civilization and combatants, a military citizenship, arose in which all citizens were involved with the military in some manner during the war. The war had resulted in the rise of powerful state capable of mobilizing millions of people to serve on the front lines and providing economic production and logistical to support them, as well as having unprecedented authority to intervene in the lives of citizens. Fascism, fascists believe that a liberal democracy is obsolete and regard the complete mobilization of society under a totalitarian one-party state as necessary to prepare a nation for armed conflict and to respond effectively to economic difficulties. A fascist state is led by a strong leader such as a dictator and martial law government composed of members of the government fascist party to forge national unity and maintain a stable and orderly society fascism rejects assertions that violence is automatically negative in nature and views imperialism political violence and war as a means that can achieve national rejuvenation fascists advocate a mix mixed economy with the principal goal of achieving achieving autarky national economic self-sufficiency which in its that in itself is not a bad thing um, but uh, how they go about it is terrible. Continuing, through protectionism and economic interventionalism policies, the extreme authoritarianism and nationalism of fascists often manifest a belief in racial purity or a master race, 
usually synthesized with some variant of racism or bigotry or demonized others, the idea of purity has motivated fascist regimes to commit massacres, forced sterilization, genocides, mass killing, or forced deportations against and perceived other. Now, I just want to say, again, and I'm not an expert on this, to my knowledge, Italy didn't really do that. So there's a... They were involved. Just because there was racism in a country at the time, it's the 1940s, 30s, 40s, 20s. There's racism everywhere there. It doesn't mean that's a specific goal of fascism as a whole, but um, nationalism often leads to the other, which means anyone from outside, often of a different culture or race, comes in, and it's not quite the same. And then saying that what Hitler did represents all fascism is not exactly uh, true, right? Um but Hitler is also a little more complicated than that because he was a social democrat. Ha, names are confusing, right? So let's just move on to communism for a second. So Merriam-Webster definition of communism. And I feel like they're being kind in the Merriam-Webster version of communism. Definition of a communism. One, A, a system in which goods are owned in common and are available to all as needed. B, a theory advocating elimination of private property. Number two, capitalization, capitalized, a doctrine based on revolutionary Marxism, socialism, and Marxist-Leninism, right? Karl Marx and later uh, Lenin in, in, uh, in Russia, which furthered communism. That was the official ideology of the USSR. B, a totalitarian system of government. Notice how both of them have totalitarian and government and authoritarianism in which a single authoritarian party controls state-owned means of production, a final stage of society in Marxist theory in which the state has withered away and economic goods are distributed equitably. Sound familiar? D. Communism system collectively. So that is Miriam Webster. So this is Wikipedia on communism. Communism is a philosophical, social, political, and e economic ideology and movement whose ultimate goal is the establishment of a communist society, namely a socio-economic order structure upon the ideas of common ownership, of the means of production, and the absence of social classes, money, and in some places, the state. As such, communism is a specific form of socialism. Communism includes a variety of schools of thought which broadly include Marxism and anarcho-communism, as well as political ideologies grouped around both, all of which share the analysis that the current order of society stems from capitalism, its economic system, and mode of production, namely that in the system there are two major social classes. The relationship between these two classes is exploitive, and that situation can only ultimately be resolved through a social revolution. The two classes are the proletariat, the working class, who make up the majority of the population within society and must work to survive, and the bourgeois, the capitalist class, a small minority who derives profit from employing the working class through private ownership of means of production. According to the analysis, revolution would put the working class in power and turn established social ownership of the means of production which is the primary element in the transformation of society towards communism. After 1917, a number of states were identified as communist. These states espoused Marxism, Leninism, or a variation of it. 
along with social democracy. Communism became the dominant political tendency within the international socialist movement in the 1920s. Some economists and intellectuals argue that, in practice, the model under which these nominally communist states operated was, in fact, a form of state capitalism, or non-planned administrative command system, and not an actual communist economic model in accordance with most accepted definitions of communism as an economic theory. I'd just like to say, because communism doesn't work at scale, it never has. It goes against, in my personal opinion, human nature, the algorithms of the universe, and basic supply and demand. You're assuming there is actually enough for everyone. When you spread things out too thin, there's not enough for anyone. Communism doesn't work on scale. The only time I've heard someone say that communism works is in the family unit. Ironically, the family unit, that which uh, Marxists and socialists, extreme socialists and communism try to destroy is a family unit, let's say a mother, a father, uh, two kids or three kids or whatever, uh, in hypothetical, if it's a good working family unit, is actually working to the collective greater good of the family. Or uh, early days in Israel, the kibbutz, uh, uh, which were communes, were very communist early on, as in even if you were married to someone, you couldn't live alone with them in the tent. You had to have a third party because they wanted to break up the family unit. Um, so that's a bit more of a idealistic communism. It always falls apart by the second generation because people don't want to operate like that. The biggest flaw in communism's ideas is human nature. And I think just universal code, it doesn't work. But you see how in the end they have to rely on some form of state capitalism. Um, in the end, though, the thing that communism and fascism have the same is generally state authoritarian dictatorship and control. A traditional sort of breakup is in communism, the state owns the factory. No, there's no private ownership. The state owns it and divvies out and, and, and central management divvies everything out. Of course, it ends up going all to the central powers anyway. Versus fascism, it allows private ownership of things uh, like, you know, say Mercedes-Benz or BMW were privately owned, but at any point in, in Germany, but at any point Hitler could come and say, you're doing this. From an efficiency standpoint, it's actually more efficient because you're kind of letting those who can do manage and build and innovate, and then you come in and tell them what you will or will not like. Objectively, if you want to think about it, China is operating in a much more fascist approach than they are in a communist approach, modern China. Uh, Mao China is very different. That was very communist. Didn't go so well. We'll talk about Mao a little bit later. Um, but essentially, they're using capitalism and privately owned companies. But a good example was recently uh, Alibaba, Jack Ma, billionaire, private company in theory, does what he wants, said something the party CCP doesn't like, boom, he disappeared for a while. So basically, they're operating in a more fascist model. So it can get really confusing. People throw around the terms communism, fascism. You're a fascist. You're a communist. Either way, they're both terrible ideologies that end up in dictatorships because they really go against human nature. Uh, fascist countries usually fall due to uh, too much oppression. Eventually, there is an uprising or a war or external powers saying enough's enough. While well, as communism usually collapses because it is not a sustainable model in anyone and everything. Every country that has communist, full-on communism collapses. And you can be like, oh, but the U.S. interferes. Well, sure, so does every other country. Every country interferes in every other country's business. So stop pretending like it's only one person who does that. 
Um, communism fails because it fails of its ideologies, not just because other people are screwing it over. Okay, that's just laziness. If it was really that good, you could survive even if other people are screwing around. Capitalist countries, people screw around with them all the time. China's doing it with uh, North America right now by buying up companies privately and trying to manipulate the market. But it'll, it only works to sue so far uh, until it doesn't. I'm just going to talk about socialism because, uh, you know, that's the in-between thing. You know, if you ask an American, I'm in Canada, right? So if you ask an American, uh, they think Canada is really socialist and comparatively it is. But it's still a very much a capitalist country, though right now under its current idiotic leadership is moving towards much more socialist ideologies, potentially even communist ideologies, though I would not go so far as to say that just yet. But if people keep voting for idiots like that, then we will see. So let's just uh, give a definition. So Merriam-Webster, socialism, noun, definition of socialism, one. Any of a various economic and political theories advocating collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and the distribution of goods to a system of society or group living in which there is no private property, be a system or condition of society in which the means of production are owned and controlled by the state. Three, a state stage of society in Marxist theory transition between capitalism and communism and distinguished by unequal distribution of goods and pay according to the work done. Uh, Wikipedia Socialism Socialism is a political, social, and economic philosophy encompassing a range of economic and social systems characterized by social ownership of a means of production. It includes the political theories and movements associated with such systems. Social ownership can be public, collective, cooperative, or of equity. While no single definition encapsulated the main types of socialism, social ownership is the one common element. The types of socialism vary based on the role of markets and planning in resource allocation on the structure of management in organizations and socialist degree on whether government, particularly existing government, is the correct vehicle for change. Socialist systems are divided into non-market and market forums. Non-market socialism substitutes factor markets and money with integrated economic planning and engineering or technical criteria based on calculation performed in kind, thereby producing a different economic mechanism that functions according to different economic laws and dynamic than that of uh, capitalism. A non-market non socialistic system eliminates the in inefficiencies and crises of traditional associated with accumu capital accumulation and profit system in capitalism. The socialistic calculation debate originated by the economic calculation problem concerns that feasibly a methods of resource allocation for planned socialist system. By contrast, market socialism retains the use of monetary prices, factors, markets, and in some cases, the profit motive with respect to the operation of societally owned enterprises and the allocation of capital goods between them profits generated by these firms would be controlled directly by the workforce of each firm or accurate to society at large in the form of social dividend. Anarchism and libertarian socialism oppose the use of state as a means to establish socialism, favoring decentralized above all, whether to establish non-market socialism or market socialism. Uh, socialist policies 
politics have been both internationalist and nationalist in orientation, organizing through political parties and opposed to party politics, at times overlapping with trade unions and other times independent and critical of them and present in both industrialized and development nations. Social democracy originated with the socialist movement supporting economic and socialistic interventions to promote, to promote social justice while nominally retaining socialism as a long term. Since the post-war period, it has come to embrace Keynesian mixed economic with predominantly developed capitalism, market economy, and libertarian democra democratic polity. Um, Polity, that's a weird, I have a weird way of saying it. That expands state interventions to include income redistribution, regulation, welfare, state, economic democracy, proposed a sort of market socialism with more democratic control of companies, currencies, investment, and natural resources. We'll stop there. Essentially, socialism can be a democ democracy, but it's a, it has a tendency to lean towards government interference in the free market, government control over markets, government rules, regulations, very centralized, and giant bureaucracies. But as you can see, it can very quickly go towards full-on communism, a.k.a. authoritarianism. So you have to be very careful when you're throwing around socialism. So a country like Canada has socialist ideologies, such as a socialist medical system, Whereas I pay my taxes, I can go to the hospital without having the paid bills. However, any good medicine, you're going to have to pay for it anyway. We do have private clinics. They're often not talked about. The idea that if we go open more open private clinics, that the wealthy people are not going to go. Well, guess what? The really good doctors already go to the private system or go to America for the private system. And the rich pay for private medicine anyways. So if you think that uh, they're not already doing that, uh, I would say with the socialized medical socialized systems, while they're good because everyone's baseline goes up, you're not getting the most optimal service because they're being managed by giant bureaucracies, which are trying to manage costs and are often run by people who are not the top 20% of quality of people and are doing garbage jobs most of the time. So well uh, on the spectrum, a well-run socialist country will be very democratic. We'll have social programs for everyone that are tax funder paying but still operates on free market capitalism to a degree or some degree. Uh, good examples of the countries that everyone likes to talk about socialism are like the Nordic countries, but you can't be a freeloader there from my understanding. I really need to look into it more. But as far as full-on communist or like full, full socialist countries, name a country that is geographically large, <coughs> has a population demographics that is very diverse, uh, that is a successful full-on extreme socialism or communist country go you can't doesn't exist they all rely on some form of capitalism to sustain themselves because the more you try to control the more you lose control because you can't control and predict for all the possible variables uh, often countries that are work well in socialism or communism as soon as they diversify their population or ideologies it falls apart because they only work when everyone agrees and plays by the rules the moment that breaks these things fall apart a little bit so you really need to rely on the sort of um, capitalistic ability to deal with randomness in any kind of algorithmic generation. Um, so there's that. So I wanted to set up these definitions because we're going to talk about this stuff. You really need to understand um, what these things do. Now, um, World War II, I'm going to discuss 
the results of the extreme ideologies of these. So, you know, first I'll talk about Hitler and the Nazis and kind of what they did, the deaths among them. But I want to talk about, because I've had arguments um, with a lot of people who just don't know or refuse that, though, and I'm a Jew, though Hitler is a horrible human being who did horrible things and killed my people, tried to wipe my people off the map along with other people, he still killed, directly or indirectly, less people than Stalin and Mao. So I want to just set up the horrors of extreme fascism, extreme communism, and essentially they all circle around to extreme authoritarianism. So I'm going to discuss these things and just give you context because you need to understand that any kind of extreme dictatorship that uses violence and nationalistic ideologies or extreme ideologies or do-as-I-say ideologies is going to end up killing a lot of people because that's the only way to get ma- people on mass to do what you want and all agree in the end of the day because no one agrees we're humans we have different opinions and most of us genuinely love freedom so i'm going to set up some information on the deaths associated with that and then i'm going to start getting into petra's actual post her storytelling about growing up in as you know the fall of the berlin wall in east germany so i'm going to start with uh hitler and the holocaust uh and the deaths because that's you know easy one well, it's not easy to talk about, but it's easy as far as most people are aware of that. So this is from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, so documenting numbers of victims of the Holocaust and Nazi persecution. So this, uh, a lot of you are probably familiar with it. It's taught over the world, evil Nazis, evil fascists. Uh, so I'm going to read about it, but I just want to remind you, leading into this, communists killed more people. But Hitler was the bad guy for the most of Western world, so that's how it's been framed. Obviously, he's the bad guy, but there's more to it. So, we'll just read through what's on this page. Again, link in show notes. The Holocaust is the best documented case of genocide, despite this calculating the exact numbers of individuals who were killed as the result of Nazi policies is an impossible task. There is no single wartime document that spells out how many people were killed. So what that really means is this is the most well-recorded, but it's not perfect, as opposed to Mao and Stalin's killings, which are not very well-recorded. So, one, towards the end of the war, the Nazis and their collaborators attempt to destroy much of the existing documentation and other physical evidence. That is a common practice. Two, to accurately estimate the extent of human losses, scholars, government agencies, and Jewish organizations since 1940 have relied on a variety of different records, including census reports captured, German and Axis archives, and post-war investigations. Three, current estimates might change as new documents are discovered or as historians arrive at a more precise understanding of the events, while no precise numbers are likely to ever be determined after 70 years of research and increasingly open archives, these ranges are likely not to change dramatically in the years ahead. So, okay, this one's not too long, so let's go through it all. Introduction, the Holocaust was a systematic, bureaucratic, state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million Jewish men, women, and children by the Nazi regime and its collaborators. The Nazis who came in power in Germany in January 1933 believed that the Germans were a racially superior and they wanted to create a racially pure state. Jews deemed inferior were considered an alien threat to the so-called German racial community. Side note, hilariously, 
the baby used to show what a perfect Aryan baby looked like was actually a Jewish child. Hilarious screw up. It's like secret insert. Jews are everywhere. No, I'm joking. Continuing. Also, this is a very serious topic, so I'm trying to keep it light, but that doesn't take away from the atrocities. So, during the era of the Holocaust, German authorities also targeted and killed the other groups, including at times their children because of the perceived racial and biological inferiority, Roma, Gypsies, Germans with disabilities, and some Slavic people, especially Poles and Russians. Other groups were persecuted on political ideologies and behavioral grounds, among them communist socialists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and homosexuals. So basically, you don't agree with us, your ideologies are wrong, or we think you're weird, we're going to kill you. Because the Nazis advocating killing children of unwanted groups, children, particularly Jewish and Romani children, were especially vulnerable in the area of the Holocaust, era of the Holocaust. Calculating the number of individuals who were killed as a result of the Nazi policies is a difficult task. There is no single wartime document created by the Nazi officials that spells out how many people were killed in the Holocaust or World War II. Uh, it's a repeat of what I read up above. Single most, I'm skipping a bit. The single most important thing to keep in mind when attempting to document numbers of victims of the Holocaust is that no one master list of those who perished exists anywhere in the world. And there's documenting some numbers. I'll just skip down. So, number of deaths, this is what they're listing based on what we know. So, Jews, 6 million. Soviet civilians, 7 million, including 1.3 Jews. 1.3 million Jews uh, who are included in the 6 million figures. So it's a, of that 7 million, it's already been accounted for 1.3 million. So, so there's 12 million Soviet prisoners of war, so around 3 million, so about 9 million. Non-Jewish Polish, about 1.8 million. So you're looking at just over 10 right now, 10 million people. Serbian civilians on the territory of Croatia, Bosnia, and Herzegovina, about a little over 300,000. People with disabilities living in institutes, about 250,000. Roma, 250 to 500,000. Jehovah's Witness, 1,900. Repeat criminal offenders and associates, 70,000. German political opponents, unknown. Homosexuals, hundreds, possibly thousands. So um, as a result of the death camps and persecution, etc., you're looking anywhere from, let's just uh, say, 12 to 15 million people. This did not including soldiers, soldier deaths. So... The whole war took more, but as far as systematic murder, it was about, let's say, a very liberal number is uh, 15 million people. Uh, and then it goes into Jewish lash by, by location, but you get the idea. And then more on the documentation. But I think that um, sums it up. And, uh, and there's so much information on that. You can look it up yourself for the most part. So I'm going to look at uh, this article I found, International Business Times. I mean, you can find tons. The numbers are going to even be harder with Stalin because they didn't really keep track. They just killed people en masse. So I'm going to read this from International Business Times. So again, I'm shifting from the traditional, oh, it's all with the fascist, 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 fascist. How many times can you say fascist? Are you woke enough yet? Now I'm going to talk about the communism and the deaths as a result of it, largely due to mismanagement and uh, intentional problems. Uh, on the subject of communism and the issues of communism, I will talk a bit more about it. Um, but uh, anything, any podcast with uh, Michael Malice in it, will he'll go in depth about that. His family, uh, his grandma grew up under the Soviets, and it was not great. 
Uh, I particularly recommend any podcast of Michael Malice where he was on Lex Friedman podcast. And they will go in-depth at a level that I cannot possibly discuss. Uh, my knowledge is not there on this topic matter. Uh, so look up Lex Friedman podcast and then look up anything with Michael Malice if you really want to hear why communism and in many ways extreme socialism is not great. So back to this. How many people did Joseph Stalin kill? Now, if you didn't know, Marx created the concept of Karl Marx, created the concept of communism. Lenin uh, and Trotsky and uh, Stalin kind of got it going with Le Lenin being sort of the forefather. And then when Lenin died, Stalin just went full ham, dictator, authoritarian, psychopath. Um, not great. <coughs> so... Joseph Stalin, who died 60 years ago, and this was written, I should say, by uh, Polash Ghosh, uh, 2013, I believe. So Joseph Stalin, who died 60 years ago in Moscow, was a small man, no more than 5'4", the abused son of a poor alcoholic Georgian cobbler, Joseph Vissarinovich, I cannot say that name, uh, also had a withered arm, a clubbed foot, and a face scarred by smallpox, but he stood very tall as one of history's most pro prolific killers. Stalin's extremely brutal 30-year rule as absolute ruler of the Soviet Union featured so many atrocities, including, including purges, expulsions, forced displacement, imprisonments in labor camps, manufactured famines, torture, and good old-fashioned acts of mass murder and massacre. Not to mention World War II. That complete toll of bloodshed will likely never be known. They really don't know the numbers. An amoral psychopath and paranoid with a gangster's mentality, Stalin eliminated anyone who ever was a threat to his power. He's well known, by the way, for doing Photoshop before Photoshop was even a thing. So if you look at textbooks or photos from even like a year apart, people will be disappeared and they'll republish the new things as if these people never even existed. So, including, and especially former allies, he was very paranoid. He had absolutely no regard for the sanctity of human life. But how many people is he responsible for killing? In February 1989, two years before the fall of the Soviet Union, a research paper by Georgian historian Roy Alexandra Mac uh, Medvedev, published in the weekly tabloid Argumenti e Facti, estimated that the death toll directly attributed to Stalin's rule amounts to some 20 million lives on top of an estimated 20 million Soviet troops and civilians who perished in the Second World War for a total of about 40 million. And why the, his soldier deaths are relevant is because he basically told his soldiers, you go forward or you die. <coughs> so his soldier, he was basically sending his soldier to the death, like knowingly to the death, not, hey, I'm sending you, I hope you come back alive. It's, you're going to fight, you're probably going to die, I don't really care. Um, there's a line in Futurama, how'd you beat them? Well, we found out the killbots had a set limit of kills and then they would shut down. So we sent wave after wave after wave after wave of men until the killbots hit their set limit. Something like that. The Germans will get tired eventually. I don't care about my people. Go fight. So anyways, continue. It's important that they published it, although the numbers themselves are horrible. Medvedev told the New York Times at the time, those numbers include my father. So... Medvedev's grim bookkeeping, including the following tragic episodes. One million imprisoned or exiles between 1927 to 1929. Nine to 11 million peasants forced off the lands and another two to three million peasants arrested or exiles in the mass collectivism program. 
Six to seven million killed by artificial famine, 1932 to 1934. One million exiled from Moscow and Leningrad in 1935. One million executed during the Great Terror of 1937 to 1938. Four to six million dispatched to forced labor camps. Ten to twelve million people forcibly relocated during World War II. And at least one million arrested for various political crimes from 1946 to 1953. Although not everyone was swept under the aforementioned events, died from natural causes, Medvedev's 20 million non-combative deaths estimate is likely to be a conservative guess. I've heard anywhere from 30 to 50 million. Right, they didn't keep track. Uh, that's one thing different with the... The one thing is that you can say for sure is that let's say Hitler had won the war and continued. The Germans were efficient in typical German fashion and uh, were exceptionally systematic and killed a lot of people in a very short time. Well, as the communist, it's more of, uh, we need you to go away, we need you to die, uh, you work in this camp till you die, uh, forced marches, uh, we're just going to starve you to death, we don't really care. It was not as systematic, and they were not directly murdering people, but they were purposely trying to kill people off. Uh, continuing, indeed, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the literary giant who wrote harrowingly about the Soviet gulag system, the true number of Stalin's victims might have been as high as 60 million. Most other estimate from reputable scholar and historians tend to range between 20 to 60 million. So my range is probably more accurate because it's probably in the middle, but I'm guessing I know nothing. In his book, Unnatural Deaths in the USSR 1928 to 1954, I.G. Daikin estimates that the USSR suffered 56 to 62 million unnatural deaths during the period, with 34 to 49 million directly linked Stalin. Right, so you get an idea. There's some more here, but I'll leave it at that. So I just want to point out, a lot of people will focus on Hitler and the Nazis' systematic approach to killing people. But what you may not realize about communism is it doesn't work because of human nature. The only reason you can get it to work, even remotely, is by forcing people to do what you want. And when they don't, you have to kill them. That is how it works, because it doesn't work. So only through authoritarian dictatorship will it ever work. Guess what? With capitalism, it's not a perfect system and people are douchebags. But guess what? It'll figure out a way to sort itself out eventually. Just saying. So obviously Stalin, just on the uh, their approach, the numbers dwarf Hitler's by anywhere from uh, double to you know five times what Hitler did. Yes, over a long time frame, but still, it's not the point. He, communism, ha communism has killed more people directly and indirectly than Hitler did by a long shot. So that's just that. And I know Jordan Peterson talks about uh, Solzhenitsyn a lot. Um, uh, archipelago, the Gulag Archipelago or something like that is the book. It's too dense for me. Um, one day maybe I'll get around it, but you know. Uh, and then I have here from Wikipedia, excess mortality in the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. Estimates of the number of deaths in the Soviet Union. Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin very widely. Some, s some scholars assert that record-keeping of the executions of political prisoners and ethnic minorities are neither reliable nor complete, while others contend that archival material declassified in 91 contain irrefutable data far superior to sources used prior, uh, etc. Prior to the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and the archival revelations, some historians estimated that the numbers killed by Stalin's were 20 million or higher. After Soviet Union dissolved, evidence from the Soviet archives was declassified and research were allowed to study it. This contained official records 
of over almost 800,000 executions, <coughs> around 1.7 million deaths in the gulags, which are forced work camps. So basically you got sent there. Yeah, it's like, oh, 20-year sentence. You're basically getting a death sentence. You're not making it. Some people did, but very few people did. So um, 390,000 deaths during the D. Kulak sensation forced resettlement in the 400,000 deaths of persons deported during 1940s with a total of 3.3 million officially recorded victims in the categories. The deaths of at least 5.5 to 6.5 million persons in the Soviet Union of just from famine alone. Because they screwed up. Or did it intentionally. With him, it's hard to say. So that is that. <coughs> now, let's look at Mao Zedong. It's a similar situation. They don't have uh, accurate records. Mao Zedong was not a bright man. And he basically, through incompetence and bad ideas, killed a lot of people. And also because of fear. Um, again, not an expert, just putting it out there. And this article I found from uh, ABC... From, uh, abc.net.australia so it's a au um but you can find a lot of this so uh this was in 2010 thursday september 23 2010 this is when this was released by uh, mark colvin so 20th century brought forth many monsters many of them are recognized as such very few people have any illusions about the scale and atrocities of the actions of paul pot stalin or hitler paul pot was cambodian think uh, several million people but for some reason Mao Zedong has escaped some of the disgust and contempt that most people retroactively feel for the dictators of the last century if you didn't know Mao Zedong China he got communism in China there are still shops selling Mao memorabilia from posters and badges to copies of the little red book but even if people think they're using these things ironically how long will they be able to do so as more evidence of Mao's infamy emerges, a new book based on meticulous research in the Chinese archives says Mao Zedong was responsible for the deaths of 45 million people between 1958 and 1962 alone. And I'm just saying, I've read, I don't, can't find the links. I've heard 90 to 100 million. 45 million is the uh, known ones kind of thing. And that's not from the soldiers. That's just from people. So continuing, it's called Mao, Mao's Great Famine, a history of China's most devastating ca ca catastrophe. Yeah. And its author and a scholar, Frank Dictor of Hong Kong University, the big numbers and the small details are simply mind-boggling. I asked Professor Decotter, how do you kill 45 million people? His response, it's a large country. How do you go about doing that? The first step in 1958 is to pretty much declare Mao as Mao does, that every man, every woman is really a soldier in a giant army, and that when you use a giant army in one continuous revolution, you deploy your workforce that runs into hundreds of millions of, to tackle one task after another, either working on irrigation projects in the evening or smelting iron in backyard furnaces in the daytime, or working on fields. Now, the problem with the approach is that once you start collectivizing everybody as you do in the army once you start herding people together in giant people's co communes communes and you collectivize everything you strip people from their land from their homes from their livestock their tools there's absolutely nothing left there is no incentive to work the profit motive is gone the only thing that you have left is a stick coercion and terror are the foundation of what of that regime and you must force famished 
people to go into the fields and do work for you? Mark Colvin, interview. How did they coerce people? Frank Dictator, people were, once the carrot is removed and there's nothing but a stick left, people are beaten all the time. People are forced to strip in the middle of the winter to work outside pregnant women. Mark, why, why would you force people to strip in winter? Frank, you would force them to strip in the belief that they would have to work in order to stay warm. And this happened from the north all the way down to the south. Even in uh, Guangdong province it happened. In one case, 300 people had to strip bare and work in the middle of the winter on an irrigation site. There is nothing but the stick to force people to work. Some people have their ears chopped off, their noses lopped off. The slightest infraction is punished by drastic measures. One man called uh, Wanse Yao for stealing a potato has his legs tied up with iron wires and a 10 kilo stone dropped on his back. Somebody chopped off one of his ears and then he's branded with a sizzling tour. In Sichuan, some people are poured into petrol and sent to light and a small boy for having stolen a grain is punished. His father has to actually bury him alive and the man dies of grief himself. The whole thing. Mark, and you found all these things in Beijing archives. Frank, not just he says Peking, he must be more English. Uh, Beijing, Peking. There are dozens of archives. It's a massive one-party state that, like all party states, is meticulously compiles its own crimes. There's extremely detailed records that give you the name, the place, who did what, to whom, when and where, an extraordinary amount of documentation. And that shows levels of violence and coercions are widespread throughout the country. You could put it very simply. Once there are no incentives to work in the countryside, villagers and party officials are locked in a spiral of violence and mounting spirals of violence. Mark. And how long does this go on? It begins in the late 1940s. Frank. Well, the so-called revolution takes place in 1949. So the Great Leap Forward started in 1958, ten years after the Chinese conquest of China. Mark. So does the killing really start until the Great Leap Forward? Frank. Indeed, 1958, there is a retreat in 1962, so it's about four years of catastrophe, the dis catastrophe that destroys not just the human beings, but also housing stock. In some places in Hunan province, 40% of all housing is destroyed to create fertilizers, to straighten roads, to punish people, to build giant canteens for the people's communes. Mark Colvin. So 45 million people in just four or five years. 10 million people in a year he was killing. 10 million a year. Frank. That's, that's, pretty, much, that's pretty much it, yes. And there are new statistics based on all sorts of surveys, sometimes at the levels of entire provinces like Sichuan, which is the size of France. Extremely detailed surveys by the very public security bureaus themselves. Mark. How much of this was also reinforced with maths, political brainwashing? Frank, a lot. Even before this, all starts in 1957. There is purge carried out to get rid of party members who somehow don't toe the line. Hundreds of thousands of party carters are dismissed and replaced by very hard, unscrupulous men who are willing to trim themselves to benefit from these radical whims that blow from Beijing peaking. 
And for the ordinary man on the street, farmers know very well that there is no point in speaking out or doing anything that might go against the grain. Failing, falling asleep at the meeting is enough to warrant a beating. People who don't turn up in the morning in the canteen get beaten. Some of them get banned from the canteen because they don't work hard enough. Nobody wants to speak out in the circumstances. Mark, does the political brainwashing go on even after the Great Leap Forward is over? Frank, 1962, the Great Leap Forward is over. This catastrophe doesn't quite stop, as of course you can just reverse a disaster of such gargantuan proportions. But at least people die in less greater numbers. But then, of course, from 1962... 66, there's a little bit of breathing space, but in 66 started the Cultural Revolution. Mark. And this Cultural Revolution takes more lives. Frank. It takes far less lives. It takes about two or three million. The Cultural Revolution, by the way, I should say, they basically killed all the educated individuals that were left. On that topic, so far the basis of officials and semi-official sources. God knows what the archives will reveal when they're opened for that particular period. Mark, do you think it is possible, as uh, Jun Chang suggested five years ago in a book, that Mao's ultimate death toll could be 70 million people? Frank, I don't think I would be very astonished. When we see the extraordinary extent of death and violence, coercion that take place during the Great, great Leap Forward, on the basis of these party archives, one really wanders what will come out once we can read the cultural revolution get a read on it and don't forget that while i've been able to use these party archives not all of them are open it's only partial opening up everything is very sensitive in the central party archives in beijing and is still locked up very safe away you didn't know china's still a dictatorship russia technically has gone back to dictatorship too mark colvin frank Dictor, author of Mao's Great Famine, A History of China's Most Devastating Catastrophe, etc. There's more to it. Um, so that is very difficult to read uh, for me personally. As a Jew, when I go to Holocaust museums, which I have, it's, uh, it's a very difficult thing. And then when you hear that the Russians had it worse, the Chinese had it worse. It's terrifying. So often when I talk about self-defense, um, I understand because of my heritage that you, you can't focus on the techniques alone. I know a lot of people don't, they do, because people paying, they come train. But the reality is knowledge is power, period. And you need to understand that what you might think you understand of the world is not true. And that even in dem democratic countries like Canada, there are those who wish to censor information because they, they want to win more than anything. And it is a very slippery slope to give governments more and more power. Whether it be fascism, communism, it doesn't really matter, or extreme socialism. When you centralize power in any way, shape, or form, it will only inevitably go one way, and that is to authoritarianism. Because in order for them to keep the power and maintain the control, they have to use 
force because inevitably when the power center is too far removed from anyone geographically or ideologically there will be conflict and in order to break up the naturally occurring family unit as communism does you have to re-educate people in a brainwashing form and I asked Petra to write these things which we haven't even got into yet because I wanted to set up some context so I want people to understand that the ideas being espoused by the radical left in democratic countries is going to lead to disaster and giving governments more power simply so that they can keep winning because the other, the bad guy, the right is evil, is wrong. If you're an actual Nazi, I don't know if you've ever noticed, <laughs> you can't really go anywhere because everybody hates you. Everyone's going to beat you up. That's why, you know, the Charlottesville or wherever it was, where they were going down the street saying the Jews will not replace us. I could give two fucks about those assholes. They live in that town. I'm not going to go to that town. I could care less about that town if that's how people behave. But I know that. Guess what? White supremacists generally stick to themselves. Nazis generally stick to themselves. Because everybody hates them. They're not the threat that you think they are. The insidious threat is always the quiet, creeping one that comes from the inside, and then it is too late for you to do anything about it. And I'm going to read a quick quote here from a very famous uh, Protestant priest, I bet, I think. So this was written by Martin Niemöller, and it's very famous. If you haven't heard it, that's a shame. So it says, first they came for the communists. And I did not, did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. So the link I'm providing for that... Um, more about him as an individual but this podcast is going to be quite long so uh, you can follow it up if you want to and that's kind of where we're at right now we're at the very starts of that I feel like and a lot of people feel like that we're at the very set that p too many people are just accepting that the governments know best and that their political parties know best and blindly follow and, and you should never do that ever um, so just to put it out so I wanted to set up some context before I get into Petra's posts and you can find stories like Petra's all over the world it was that I wanted to set up the definitions of fascism, communism, socialism because there's a lot of confusion and the media and certain political parties use a lot of doublespeak I'll get into that afterwards confuse you between the differences and I would like to point out a group like Black Lives Matter uh, openly is a Marxist organization they want to destroy the family unit it's a Marxist organization what does being Marxist have to do with bettering black lives in America because extreme communism as you saw which starts with Marxism ends up killing more people and making things worse and I want to point out, I'm recording this again mid-July mid 2021. And right now, in Cuba, they are speaking out against 
the communist regime there, now that the uh, Raul Castro has stepped down and Fidel died a few years ago. You can see in real time what's happening to people speaking out against their governments. They're being taken off by police on mid-interview. They're being arrested. They're being beaten. They're being silenced because the people want to end the brutality of the communist regime. And there are many of those who would try to make them look nice and talk nice because of the they're just doing socialism and communism wrong. We can do it better. Nah. If the flaw that I believe is that it's just simply human nature and goes against the algorithms of the universe, it will never work like that. I'm all for decentralized. Uh, now with the internet, we can go back to decentralized sort of city-state structures, especially with blockchain te technology. But what do I know about such things? But I just wanted you to set up some context going into this and maybe corrected some misconceptions you have about the glories of anything. So here is the first of Petra's posts about, you know, an hour in. Yay. Doomed to repeat growing up in East Germany. Our history. Doomed to repeat growing up in East Germany. Our history. This is part one. Our history of a five-part series titled Doomed to Repeat Growing Up in East Germany by Petra Forrester. When I started writing this blog, I didn't expect it to get this long. I'm not a political person, as a friend recently said. I pick my battles carefully. When you look at my Facebook feed, it's about my cats, martial arts, and traveling. That being said, I've recently started following the news a bit more, and I noticed a development in the politics of North American continent and back in good old Europe that raises all kinds of red flags for me. I will have to go back in history to explain where I am coming from with my concerns, so bear with me here. I was born at the end of 1979 in East Germany, the former German Democratic Republic, or GDR. I was nine years old when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. I remember watching it on the news and the bizarre feeling of seeing people climbing on top of it. Prior to that day, you would have been risking your life. And later seeing the wall actually being torn down. The exact date is November 9th, 1989. But, have you ever wondered why German Unity Day, Tag der Dichten Einheit, the holiday to celebrate reunification, is October 3rd? Simple, the Night of the Broken Glass, or Reichskristallnacht, happened in 1938 on November 9th. Thousands of Jewish-owned stores and buildings, along with hundreds of synagogues, were smashed by rioters, both civilian and brown shirts. The same happened to Jewish homes, hospitals, and schools. As a result of that single night and state-sponsored brutality, approximately 30,000 Jews in Germany and Austria were deported to concentration camps. Growing up in German means you carry a lot of history. And it is important to learn about the history in order to not make the same mistakes again. Yes, I was still very young in 1989, but it was always important in my family to learn as much as we can about history. My dad had all kinds of books about it, and of course, we learned a lot about it in school. But here is where it gets a bit complicated, because history books are written by the victors. Depending on where you grow up, the angle and 
on events might be different or some facts may be omitted. Which is, again, very strange since history happened. You might think those facts are objective. But depending on the system you live in, they may give events a different spin. Let's circle back to my background and my attempts to get things lined up so that they may make sense. I try not to go into too much detail as it is incredibly complex, but I will try to cover the most important things and fit it all together. After World War II, 1939 to 1945, Germany was divided into different zones. West Germany, which was split into three zones, each controlled by a different country, USA, Great Britain, and France, and East Germany, which was under control of the Soviet Union. Berlin, the capital, was split into East and West Berlin, East Berlin being controlled by the Soviets and West Berlin controlled by the USA, Great Britain, and France together. During the years of the Third Reich, the area occupied by Germany was way bigger. After World War II, large pieces of land were given away to other nations, like Poland, Czechoslovakia. Many places have the name of their town in Polish or Czech, and sometimes below, in a smaller font or in brackets, the old German name. An example, in what is now uh, Czechia, the German town of Utsinandlaben was formerly Ossi. If you ever happen to go there, keep your eyes open. This also means the outer borders of Germany, as they exist now, are not that old. During the Potsdam Conference, July 17th to August 2nd, 1945, Stalin, Churchill, Attlee, and Truman got together to discuss the next steps for Germany. They wanted to avoid the mistakes that were made after World War I in the Treaty of Versailles, 1919. Among a couple of other things, they wanted to establish a democracy in Germany, demilitarize the country, proceed with denazification, and the establishment of military tribunals for war crimes against members of the leadership of Nazi Germany, internationally Nuremberg Military Tribunal. Let's have a look at the denazification. The plan was to replace people in administrative government positions who were identified as strong believers, followers of the Nazi regime. In the Soviet zone, that meant those in positions of authority were being replaced predominantly with people who were in favor of socialism-communism in order to transform that region into a socialist society. Ever since the October Revolution in 1917 and the creation of the Soviet Union, with its socialist philosophy following Marx, Engels, and Lenin, to name a few, many people were drawn to that idea of socialism-communism. Since the Soviet Union was the first country to implement this system, many German intellectuals traveled there to learn more about it, and to either become fully convinced that this was the greatest thing ever, or at least a few to witness the other side of the medal, with all of the absolutism and cruelty and distance themselves from it. When establishing a new government and new governing body in East Germany, People with pro-socialist attitudes were preferred when assigning offices. Early on, the Soviet Union worked on creating a socialist system in East Germany and to make it part of the Eastern Bloc, which was governed by the Soviet Union. It was also part of the idea to keep Germany weak by keeping it split into East and West. Interesting side fact, most of you will know that I practice Judo. 
Judo was forbidden in Germany, among other martial arts, after World War II until approximately 1949. It made a big difference who ran the zone. In the USA-controlled zone, and later in all West Germany, the Marshall Plan was implemented to help Europe, including Germany, to recover from the destruction of World War II. West Germany benefited from it a lot. Borders were open, and many so-called Gasterbieter, or guest workers, foreign or migrant workers, who moved to West Germany between 1955 and 1973, came to West Germany to help rebuild the country. The idea originally for them was to come to Germany, help rebuild, and then go back to their respective countries. But many of them stayed as they came to Germany as young people, made friends, founded families, and had their families from their countries of origin come to live with them. The situation in East Germany was different. Instead of providing financial and material help to rebuild the country, many factories, including their means of production, were transported to the Soviet Union. Not much was left. Many people migrated out of the East Sector to find better opportunities in one of the other zones. In order to keep people from leaving, the German-German border was established and fortified in 1952. In 1961, the Berlin Wall was built to divide Berlin into East and West. Since 1960, East Germany soldiers had orders to shoot if they saw anyone attempting to cross the border from East to West. There was no legal requirement to shoot to kill. However, for troops deployed on the border, commendations and bonuses for guards who had shot and killed escaping fugitives, ideological indoctrination of young draftees and soldiers, and laws that under certain circumstances criminalized escape attempts all tended to transform the permission to use weapons into a kind of obligation to use them. The exact number of people who died trying to get over the Berlin Wall is not confirmed, though estimates are between 140 and 245. The number of people killed while trying to cross the German-German border was also not accurately recorded, though it is predicted to be in the range of 1,000 to 1,400. Most soldiers serving at the inner German border were from Saxony, a region which features a very distinct accent and dialect of Germany. The reason for choosing Saxon Germans as border guards was that the state of Saxony didn't touch the inner German border, being separated from Berlin by the state of Brandenburg. And therefore, most soldiers didn't have any personal ties to the East Berlin population. The government feared that if the soldiers knew or could sympathize with the person trying to cross, they might not shoot. A side effect of the strategic choice is that when asked what they associate with East Germany, West German often mention and mock the Saxon accent. I have to admit, Saxon is not the prettiest of accents. However, before accusing me, as an Easterner, of being Saxon myself, I will have you know that the area where I'm from is called Upper Lusatia, where originally belonged to the Kingdom of Bohemia. But during the Thirty Years' War, the Bohemian king was indebted to the Elector of Saxony, and to settle the debt they gave them Upper and Lower. Lusatia, so don't call me a Saxon. Written by Petra Forrester, UTKM Greenbelt. For training online, visit www.utkmu.com. If you're in the Metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person and sign up at urbantacticskm.com. Okay, so for that, there are some maps in the actual post. Again, link in the uh, post there. So you need to... Um, 
understand she's setting up some context about wh- how kind of Germany led to that. Again, if you go on Netflix, there are some great documentaries about uh, World War Two and Hitler and the battles. And if you believe um, like Hitler was democratically elected and through other people being sh- uh, shenanigansy and greedy uh, in order to save the fa- failing uh, state just said, hey, fix the problem. Go. We believe in you. And it kind of just went from there. And little did they know he was a psycho who ended up being quite an avid drug user. And Anyways, watch those Netflix documents. It's quite interesting. Um, and what Petra brings up is there is um, a clear distinction between East and West Germany. The ones that were run somewhat capitalistic under monitoring of the Western powers did really well. And the ones that were in the Eastern Bloc did not do so well because communism doesn't do. You have to let, it doesn't do well. The re, no matter what anyone says, you have to let the people who can do. But you just have to make sure they're not being dicks and screwing everything over. If you treat everyone the same and give everyone the same and spread everyone the same, you have no progress forward because those who can do don't have the resources to do it. And the government's are just going to mismanage it because they're not necessarily the most competent people. You have to let innovators innovate, and the best way to do that is through capitalist ideologies. You just need laws that prevent people from being dicks, like anti-monopoly laws, for example. You can't just outright buy out or destroy or screw over your competition. You can't put poison chemicals in the rivers, guys. Like Stuff like that is what you need, but capitalism works because it allows for iterations and variables and uh, successes and failures. And you see West Germany did so much better than East Germany. And the people in East Germany were not living under great conditions at all compared to the West Germany. So she sort of sets it up there. Now, the second one she has is about growing up in East Germany, our education. So I want to talk about something here for a second. Uh, the definitions again, and it's important. If, uh, uh, something I don't know if I mentioned. You need to understand definitions can be rechanged over the years. So often, uh, older generations are confused because the media and the youth have changed the definitions, and nobody told them. And so, understanding when you're having a conversation with someone about anything, you need to make sure you have your definitions on specific things right. Because if you think education means one thing, and they think it means a different thing, even though you both think it's an obvious answer, you're not having a conversation. So again. Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which you need to know is quite left-wing as far as how they edit things. Even if it's, this is objective, no, they're giving definitions often spun. So, Merriam-Webster Education Definition. It's a noun. So, 1A, the action or process of educating or being educated. Also a stage of such process. B, the knowledge and development resulting from the process of being educated very vague right Two, the field of study that deals mainly with methods of teaching and learning in schools so here is another one this is dictionary.com education noun one the act or process of imparting or acquiring general knowledge developing the powers of reasoning and judgment and generally in preparing oneself or others intellectually for mature life Two, the act or process of imparting or acquiring particular knowledge or skill sets as for a profession. Three, a degree level of kind of schooling. Four, the result produced in instruction, training, or study. Five, the science or art of teaching pedagogies. Now again, if you didn't know that Merriam-Webster was quite left-wing in their approach, you wouldn't really pick up on it. But the vagueness of their definition 
means it's very open to interpretation of what education means and they can sort of claim it's one thing they may even saying it they may even use the term education when they really mean indoctrination now, i'm going to talk about that the definition in dictionary.com uh, and i'm not sure what they're who these guys are anymore the spins it's much more detailed more specific very uh, is less ambiguity in the definition so i much prefer that definition now let's look up uh, indoctrinate in the merriam-webster dictionary verb to imbue with a usually partisan or secretarian opinion point of view or principle two to instruct especially in fundamentals or rudiments teach hmm interesting Dictionary.com, noun, they're defining it as a noun. I guess it could be both. The act of indoctrinating or teaching or inoculating a doctrine, principle, or ideology, especially with one specific point of view. Again, Merriam-Webster, you guys, their definitions are problematic, I think. I really do. Um, the Dictionary.com are much more preferable. They're very more specific in what what they really mean. I thought I would uh, give you my definition, just loose ones. I think they're simpler. Education is, this is what we know now. This is the facts that we have now. This is the knowledge that we have now. Go be better. Learn more, grow more, develop. Education or indoctrination is, this is what we know to be true. There is no other thing anyone else who says otherwise is a racist, a liar, a bigot. You must believe this or else. Sound familiar? So a lot of people in the school system pushing ideas saying anything other than this is wrong and you're a racist. That's indoctrination. You should be against indoctrination. Indoctrination is pushing a singular idea over all else. This is not scientific approach. This is not a smart approach. Eliminating all possible things that don't agree with you is going in the way of authoritarianism, which will lead into deaths of potentially millions of people, depending on it, how it goes. In the uh, 20th century, there were several two authors of predominance that were extremely important. 1984 is by George Orwell, George Orwell being the author, An Animal Farm, also by George Orwell, and then A Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Now, Brave New World was written in 1932, uh, 1984 is 1949, and Animal Farm is 1945. Now, these, uh, 1984 and Animal Farm were standard reading when I went to high school here in Canada, in English class usually. And they were standards in the Western literature because not because they're somehow the most well-written books, that, though they were very well-written, but the ideas that they espouse. And uh, my understanding is there's a lot of people demanding they be removed from education because of the ideas in the books. Well, the ideas in the books are against communism and extreme socialism. Brave New World and 1984 deal with... Uh, more to do with fascist approach, but the results are still the same. If you've never read these books, I strongly recommend you do. Um, again, the links, I'm putting Wikipedia links in the, uh, in the show notes, but I'll read through just so you have an idea. 
so just a quick one 1984 1984 novel often referred to as 1984 in writing is a dystopian social science fiction novel written by English novelist George Orwell it was published on 8th of June 1949 by Sekarin Osberg in Orwell's ninth and final book completed in his lifetime thematically 1984 centers around the consequences of totalitarianism and mass surveillance. Ironically, in England, which is now one of the most mass-surveilled places on the planet, it's as if they took the ideas from the book, and repression regimented in persons and behaviors within society. Orwell, himself a democratic socialist, modeled the authoritarian government in the novel after Stalinistic Russia. See how that works? Uh, more broadly, the novel examines the role of truth in the facts with politics. The story takes place in imagined future in the 1984. So it's in 1949. He's talking about 1984. Or how he sees it. When much of the world has fallen victim to perpetual war, omnipresent government surveillance, historical negotiation, and propaganda, Great Britain, known as the Airstrip One, has become a province of totalitarian superstate named Oceania that is ruled by a party whose employ the thought police the persecute individuality and independent thinking. Big Brother, the leader of the party enjoys intense cult of personality despite the fact that he may or may not even exist. The protagonist, Winston Smith, is diligent and skillful rank and file worker, outer party member who secretly hates the party and dreams of rebellion. It goes on. Something is interesting about George Well. He's a democratic socialist who wrote a lot of his books based off of Russian social communism. But a lot of people interpret it as, as fascist. He's trying against fascism. Well, he's a right, he writes against authoritarianism, which is not the same thing. Then we have Animal Farm. Animal Farm is an allegory for uh, the Russian Revolution. So just a quick one. Animal Farm is a satirical, allegorical novel by George Orwell, first published in England, etc. The book tells the story of a group of farm animals who rebel against their human farmer, hoping to create a society where the animals can be equal, free, and happy. Ultimately, the rebellion is betrayed, and the farm ends up in a state of as bad as it was before, under the dictatorship of the pig named Napoleon. According to Orwell, the fable reflects events leading up to the Russian Revolution, and then on the Stalinistic era of the Soviet Union, Orwell, a democratic socialist, was a critical critic of Joseph Stalin and the hostile to Moscow-directed Stalinism, an attitude that was critically shaped by his experiences during the May Day conflicts between Paul and the Stalinist forces during the Spanish Civil War. It goes on. Now, Animal Firm is a, is a simple, you can read it even to kids and keep it simple. It's a very, uh, it shows you why communism always ends up in dictators. What's interesting about Animal Firm is I really want you to go on YouTube and look up Jordan Peterson's podcast he does with uh, Yonmi Park called Tyranny, Slavery, and Columbia Youth, Yunmi Park. It's episode, season four, episode 26. You really listen to it. I think it's very important to listen to that one. And if you don't cry during that one, it's, it's hard not to. It's very, it's quite emotionally charged. So Yunmi Park, just a quick synopsis, is a North Korean defector. Her story is crazy. Uh, she tells it in the podcast. I'm not going to go. It's, it's insane. I cannot imagine having to live like that. She even talks about how Columbia University, a prestigious university, felt made her feel like she's in North Korea. But when she got out to South Korea, eventually after going through China, etc., 
long story, a horrific story. Um, she th was told, essentially, that everything you believe from the North Korean dictatorship is a lie. And she said, okay, but how do I know what you're telling me is not a lie? And luckily for her, she's a voracious reader. She learned English. She learned to read. She was very educated as far as learning to go from a grade primary school, base level education, and in a year charging through to high school, finishing high school. It's a very smart person. She found Animal Farm, and she picked it because it was a short book. And she read it. And she said, now I know they're telling me the truth about North Korea. So there's some modern context. I am not even going to talk about uh, the deaths under North Korea because we really have no idea. One day we will. So listen to that one too. And another one, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. So I'll read this. A Brave New World is a dystopian social science fiction novel by English author Aldous Huxley, written in 1931 and published in 1932, largely set in a futuristic world state whose citizens are environmentally engineered into intelligence-based social hierarchies. He had a very good knowledge of genetics <laughs> for that time. Anyways, and just so you know, it's very hard to start the book. It's very old English written in a way that's it's tough to get through. But if you can get through the first third, you'll, you'll, you'll be fine. So the novel anticipates huge scientific advancements in reproductive technology, sleep learning, psychological manipulation, and classical conditioning that are combined to make a dystopian society, which is challenged by only a single individual. The story protagonist Huxley followed this book with a reassessment in an essay, Brave New World, etc. Anyways, um, the ending of this book, I haven't, so the... George Orwell books I haven't read in a while. I read Brave New World more recently, and the ending is just so unsettling. It's just, you feel like that's the ending. And in many ways, Brave New World is um, a little bit more accurate of what's going on because people are distracted by pleasure. The, the authoritarians, rather than using the stick, are using the carrot and genetic engineering to control the populace. But it's quite an uneasy ending. But these books, which a lot, are, a lot of people are trying to throw out the window because they're all westernized books with English people. We need to get over... It's irrelevant because the ideas in the book are what matter and they are so important. If you read these books and you feel uneasy and you're saying demanding socialism or authoritarian or the other must go, you really need to think twice about your ideologies. And the reason why I'm talking about these books is because they really delve into how you can educate or rather indoctrinate sorry not educate indoctrinate and re-educate entire populations to believe things that are psychotic and if you read these books and you feel uneasy it means you might like freedom more than you realize and if you listen to Yunmi Park's story you might realize you like freedom more than you realize and if you can get through all these books and that interview without crying or feeling uneasy you're a psychopath, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Um, the books themselves are hard to read in the sense that they're older English, so you have to be patient. The way they're written might be dry for modern uh, audiences, but remember, it's the ideas in the books. And uh, again, I was listening to Lex Friedman with Michael Malice, and he was talking about the communists knew that if you can go after three generations, so the kid, the grandparents... Uh, the parents and the grandparents, you can change society. 
If you want to make a community that has been disparaged or whatever, systematic, whatever you want to call it, systematic racism, blah, 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 blah. You want to fix them? Guess what? It's going to take three generations. Three generations of educating them properly. This is the science. This is the math. This is what we know of things. Go. It's going to take three generations. The problem is everyone wants it now. You just really have to be patient to bring people out of what they call, um, oh, generational trauma. It's a thing. Now imagine grandparents grew up under communist Mao or communist Stalin or communist anything or fascist dictators in Italy or or uh, Nazi dictatorship guess what that's generational trauma too it goes both ways you can't pretend like it doesn't exist all over the place but the solution is proper education as in this is what we know now here's the facts of what we know now go prove us right or wrong and be better not this is what you mean must believe if you don't believe you're racist you're a bigot you're this that's indoctrination that's what communist china did that's what stalinistic communism did that's what nazi germany did your ideas are not better you're doing what they did you need to be patient and if it's hard for a group of people that's been not treated well or not educated to move forward just be patient it will take time you force it we're going to end up right back where we were before. So that's why I wanted to bring that stuff up. Setting up the education. So here is Doom to Repeat, our education. Doom to Repeat, growing up in East Germany, our education. This is part two, our education, of a five-part series titled Doom to Repeat, growing up in East Germany by Petra Forrester. Part 1 is our history. Okay, so we've established that East Germany was a socialist system. While West Germany was lucky to have Gastbeiter, the situation in East Germany was a bit different. While here too people from other countries were brought in, mostly from Eastern European countries, Vietnam, North Korea, Angola, Mozambique, and of course Cuba there was still a shortage of workers, though East Germany tends to brag about how progressive they were regarding treating men and women equally. I personally think that this is, it is this shortage that forced the government to provide resources so that both men and women could contribute equally to rebuilding the country. In West Germany, you could observe a more traditional role distribution, with the husband going to work and being the main breadwinner, and the wife staying at home to raise the children. In East Germany, both were working, often in a very exhausting shift system. Early childhood education started for quite early for many children, beginning with Kinderkrippen or nursery school for very young children, five to six months old, approximately to three years old, followed by Kindergarten, Garden of Children, for three to five or six-year-olds, and then starting primary school, usually at the age of six. The positive side was that every child was guaranteed a spot in the Kinderkrippen or Kindergarten. Plus, there was a lot of effort put into the education of the staff. As a child, you learned early on to be a part of the group, which is important, but this can also be used to start feeding the children into a specific social system. In my case, it was socialism. 
we were taught songs, German children's songs, and songs that were translated from Russian. We would listen to fairy tales from the brothers Grimm and stories about Baba Yaga and the beautiful Wasililsa. The Soviet Union was often referred to as Grosser Brudin, or Big Brother, not in the Orwell's sense of Big Brother from the book 1984, but as a literal older sibling who, allegedly, was looking out for his younger siblings, the German Democratic Republic, or GDR. There were many exchange programs going on between East Germany and the Soviet schools. The first foreign language most people learned was Russian, starting in grade 5. Mine was the first generation of students who learned English first in grade 5, Russian still being added in grade 7. Keep in mind, when I was in grade 7, it was 1993. So this was happening four years after the wall came down and three years after the official reunification. The changes following the collapse of the Eastern Bloc were implemented very slowly. There is a big age gap between my siblings and myself. My sister is almost 18 years older than me, but we still managed to have a couple of teachers in common over subsequent years. When my sister was in school, one of our shared teachers reported her for wearing a blue jeans with the U.S. flag, resulting in her suspension. To become a teacher, you had to be a member of the main political party, the SED, or Sozialistische Deutschland Socialist Unity Party of Germany. When I had the same teacher in school, 93 to 98, they were now a member of the CDU, Christelich Demokratische Union Deutschlands, Christians Democratic Union of Germany, which meant this person did a socio-political 180. Socialism considered the religion as opium for the people. As a result, there weren't many active churches in East Germany. We had friends who were Catholic, and all of their children were incredibly smart and intelligent, but because of their faith, they had a hard time getting admitted to universities. I think family friends were able to help them because I know that one of the children studied mathematics and physics at a university level. It was definitely not easy for them, and I'm sure that the Stasi, Stasjernheit, the state secret service, had a close eye on them. The first lesson my dad taught me was don't believe the media especially in countries ruled by the Soviet Union newspapers, broadcast news, and books, where these forms of media were used to manipulate the population. We were provided with books in the promoted the idea of socialism. Many German authors and artists who voiced their concerns or openly criticized this philosophy were shunned, banned, not allowed to publish their works, imprisoned, or even expelled. Anyone noticing the hypocrisy? Critical thinking was not encouraged. From grade 1 to 8, students were part of the socialist youth organization called Ernst Talman Pioneer Organization. From grade 1 to 4, we were Jugendpioneer, or Young Pioneers. And our uniforms was a white shirt with the Pioneer logo on the one sleeve and a blue necktie. From grade 5 to 8, we would wear a red necktie and were called Thalman Pioneer, Thalmin pioneers. I think my generation was probably the last one that still got to be a Thalmin pioneer. I remember a big ceremony related to that, but again, that was years after the reunification. 
we too had ten commandments. One of them was to be friends with children from the Soviet Union and all other countries, but an emphasis on being on the Soviet Union. In grade eight, I would have advanced into the FDJ, the Friedrich Juvin, or Free German Youth. Part of that organization included attending all kinds of camps where you learned how to dig trenches, among other things. But by the time I was the age, the whole process was discontinued. The FDJ still exists in Germany, though, but it is no longer important. The positive side of these youth organizations was that they provided summer camps and arranged holidays for children and young adults, which was great relief from, for working parents. Our summer break being eight weeks long, as it is in Canada, many working parents were unable to take time off. Our education system was structured to get us ready to be good little workers in service of the higher ideal of socialism. History was taught from the Soviet point of view and emphasized how thankful we have to be for the Soviets to free us from the Nazis. Facts about war crimes committed by the Soviets were conveniently omitted. I was still very young when the brainwashing started and I remember reading a book about the crimes committed by the Red Army and my first reaction was shock and disbelief. But reasons kicked in and I understood that my education had been very one-sided. When you are being raised in a specific system that also conditioned you on how to think and how to perceive things, it takes a lot of time to first acknowledge it then try to break the pattern and step away to get a different point of view on things. The first thing that our brain learns is often perceived as the ultimate truth. When you are taught early on that the Soviet Union is your big brother and to look out for you, and they are all as good as in the world, and that socialism communism is the non plus ultra, it can be a very brutal awakening when this illusion is shattered and you will become very skeptical. Or at least, I became skeptical. Whenever someone is trying to sell you something as the greatest thing ever, without any negative sides, I don't believe them. Every idea, every concept has pros and cons. It really depends on your position. One thing that really bothers me in the social structure that pushed so hard on every side to sell us this ideology was the reporting, the subject of the next part in this series. Written by Petra Forrester, UTKM Greenbelt. For training online, visit utkmu.com. If you're in the Metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. So, there you see a real hand from Petra's story that they started with sort of indoctrination in the school system, and then when East Germany fell and it was sort of being reindicated, they had to re-educate them not to, quote, re-educate in an indoctrination sense, though I'm sure that was there a little bit, but was to, we need them to function in a society they know nothing about. We need to bring them up with the knowledge that they have not been getting, right? You need to teach people and, and, and bring them up. The story of Yonmi Park talks about it too. She didn't know anything about the rest of the world, nothing. She believed things that were lies, just just factually lies and same sort of Petra's experience it's a challenging situation when you all when your entire world view is blown out of the water and you're told you were lied to what you believe to be true is false a lot of people just have mental breakdowns and choose not to accept the new knowledge 
what do you do with that? North Korea is an interesting situation. Is That is honestly the greatest humanitarian crisis in human history. The real reason no one wants to go to war with North Korea is, in, is not the nukes. It's, it's got nothing to do with the nukes. That's, eh. If the world wanted to flatten that army, they could do it in a day or two, I'm sure. However, what he would most likely do in the, the Kim family would start mass murdering their own population. Not only that, you have an entire army of people who are just brainwashed. So they will be like the killbots, metaphorically. And then when you inevitably beat this army, which you will, what do you do with 50 million people who know nothing about the outside world? The truth, I believe, is that no one wants to deal with that. And why that bothers me is after the Holocaust, people said never again. Now, the Jewish population are saying never again to the Jews, but I think it should be never again anywhere. And the thing is, when it comes to authoritarian dictators who are doing mass murder, the only way you can get rid of them is through war. But as we learned from Iraq and, uh, and uh, Al- uh, what is it, Algeria, uh, Gaddafi, was it Algeria? Um, probably, I'm screwing it up. When you take these people out with no plan, there's power vacuum and things just go to chaos. And that's why people don't want to deal with it anymore because I go and I take out these psychotic leaders, free their people, the people don't know what to do, and you have to spend the next 30 to 50 years of your resources to try to bring three generations of people, that's how long it takes, back into the 21st century. No one wants to do that because countries barely have the resources to properly manage their own countries. You see how important it is to allow open education, knowledge, and ideas? It is exceptionally, exceptionally exceptionally important not to put your head in the sand to actually have conversations about ideas worth idea things that you find uncomfortable uh again i follow a lot of left-leaning individuals like i mean really left-leaning individuals people who i don't i vehemently disagree with i have them on my facebook and that way i'm getting a broad spectrum of thing i want to smack like face palm myself with half the crap they're saying with their selective choices they're picking and choosing stuff they're ignoring what their side is doing. And it drives me nuts. But I follow them because I want to see what is the other side doing. Because I need to know when I need to run. I need to know when I need to stand up and be vocal and say no. I need to know when I need to challenge it. What we saw in COVID was blind faith and fear. These are tactics. They use science as a guise, but they were not making policies based on science a lot of the time. It was based on fear power and control and you can sit here and say oh you're conspiracy theorists my regular students know what I'm like I will back this up if you want to have a long conversation about it but I will say then 5, 10, 20, 30 years however long it takes we're going to look back at COVID and be like what the hell was wrong with us allowing the governments to act like such fools and take away more freedoms from us and more rights over fear that was not it was based in something it's not baseless but the execution and handling of this is what put the living fear into some of us that were like, this is not good, guys. And Petra started saying, this is what it feels like. It's, it feels like I'm back in Germany when I was younger again. You can't talk about this because it goes against what we're telling you. A world without debate in science is a world that's not practicing science at all. 
something that you should be concerning about. And so I want to remind people about the history of science. The history of science is actually one in which the mainstream ideologies, 80% or 90% of the time, have been wrong because they didn't actually want to find out the new truth. But science is about seeking truth. Not my truth, not your truth, just objective truth. And sometimes you get your ideas and you dig your heels in and you think of that you know the truth and then something comes along and you don't want to change your mind because you've already made up your mind. But that, that's not how science works. That's not how any of this works. And that's not how we're going to lead to a productive future. So I'm going to leave it at that for there. Stop letting yourself get indoctrinated and ask yourself, are you open to education or are you just indoctrinated now the next one is doomed to repeat growing up in germany our surveillance doomed to repeat growing up in east germany our surveillance this is part three our surveillance of a five-part series titled doomed to repeat growing up in east germany by petra forrester part one our history part two our education while I agree that the government provided the incentive for citizens to report the inappropriate speech and behavior of their neighbors, friends, and even family, it was everyone's personal decision to report someone to the Stasi, and by doing so, most likely threatening and destroying that person's life and livelihood, as well as those of their family. During the time the GDR existed, they employed the divide-and-conquer approach to keep the population in check in order to access higher social career positions and earn advantages you had to be a member of the socialist unity party of germany or sed a big role was played by the secret service the stasi short for they had people everywhere Citizens were encouraged to spy on their friends and neighbors and to report any so-called suspicious behavior, meaning did they do or say anything critical about socialism, the government, the Soviet Union? Even a bad joke could get you arrested if it was perceived as critical of the system. The reward for the rat who sold you out was maybe a vacation, a color TV set, or a promotion. That being said, it didn't necessarily mean that every police officer would report you if you said something. They had to be a member of the SED, but many of them would still turn a blind eye. Unfortunately, people were sometimes reported by someone they least expected it from, like a good friend they used to go on family trips with. The people in my hometown were afraid of my dad because he often said things that were critical of the system, but was never arrested for it. My family was lucky. We had friends in high positions in Berlin who made sure my dad wouldn't be jailed. After reunification, my dad requested his Stasi file, and when he received it, there was a lot of vetting and information deemed illegible for the public viewing. They hid the names of the persons who reported my dad, those whom had hoped to get him arrested. I cannot even describe the feeling of disgust I experienced when thinking about this, not only my father, but everyone who was reported. Jail was different under the GDR. 
I know police brutality exists, but often it is the prisoners who cause a lot of harm to each other. In the GDR, prison meant you were being tortured by the guards to get a statement out of you to either blame yourself or another person. When we read the word torture, we had a rough idea in mind, but most of us are in denial of what one person is capable of doing to another, and we often don't want to think about what was done. Sleep deprivation was a common tactic. Another was solitary confinement in darkness. Then there was physical torture. People were beaten with sticks or water torture. The guards would use handcuffs to secure the prisoner to a wall and fill the cell with water. The prisoners never knew what would happen next. Would they ever see daylight again? And no, they didn't have access to a defense lawyer or visitation rights. Torture was considered a legitimate means of interrogation in East Germany until its fall in 1989. Living in the GDR came with a lot of fear of saying the wrong thing. Early on, we were conditioned to feel bad about being German, and that we only had a chance for redemption by following the socialist lead of the Soviet Union. For the longest time, I felt guilt when talking to people from other European countries, inherited guilt from the Nazis, and there are many people out there who take advantage of that. Imagine having a conversation with another person and both sides provide facts for their perspective points of view, and all of a sudden the other party running out of things to say and remembering that you are German calls you a Nazi, as a last resort to shut you up. I often didn't know what to say because I was so conditioned to feel guilty. Slowly, over time, I learned that many countries with surviving victims of National Socialism don't blame the generations that came after. They understood that they cannot blame children for the mistakes of their parents. When I studied in the Czech Republic, I took a train home one day and ended up in a conversation with an older gentleman, old enough to have lived through World War II. We had a great conversation about history and all kinds of things, And it was while exchanging ideas and experiences with him that I started to understand that he didn't blame me for what had happened, that it wasn't my fault. I have friends who are Jews, and they also don't blame the generations that came after. We have to make sure that it doesn't happen again, but I don't want to walk with my head down because I happen to be born German, on the wrong side of the wall. But I still feel uncomfortable, even just writing this feels wrong on some part. This is what early childhood conditioning does to you. Under the GDR, we had our own anthem. Afrstendem os reinen, risen from the ruins. Which was literally about overcoming old woes to find happiness and success. But we were not allowed to sing the lyrics because that would have been patriotic and patriotism was deemed unacceptable. You could be reported for such inappropriate behavior. Written by Petra Forrester, UTKM Greenbelt. For training online, visit www.utkmu.com. If you're in the Metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. I'd just like to reread a part. While I agree that the government provided the incentive for citizens to report on the inappropriate speech and behavior of their neighbors, friends, and even family, it was everyone's personal decision to report someone to the Stasi, and by doing so, most likely threatened 
and destroyed that person's life and or livelihood, as well as that of their family. It's quite intense. Now, before you sit here and say, okay, well, I live in a Western country. This isn't a problem. I'm not in a communist regime. I'm not in a fascist regime. I am fine. I want to talk about Edward Snowden. Now, hilariously, when I uh, went to look up Edward Snowden NSA, my internet died. I thought that was funny. But um, so if you don't know who Edward Snowden, and uh, I'm going to put the links here. So whistleblowers.org. And, and if you don't know who Edward Snowden is, ooh, anyways, in 2013, Edward Snowden, a former intelligence contractor for the U.S. National Security ANSA, revealed the existence of previously highly classified intelligence gathering surveillance programs run by the NSA and the U.K.'s equivalent, the GCHQ, while working at the NSA. Snowden began accumulating information in the NSA surveillance program and activities well contradicted there from 2009 to 2013. Now, he did a massive dump, right, of information, classified information that he had access to. And at the time, uh, this is just me talking now, This uh, at the time, there was a lot of people who said he's a traitor, except he isn't. He did exactly what a whistleblower is supposed to do. Hey, something is wrong here. The government is doing something wrong. Something is wrong here. And to this day, in 2021, he's still in Russia. He had the only place he could go. He wasn't trying to go to Russia. He was originally trying to go to Ecuador, and he got stuck in Russia. And then eventually he uh, got asylum there because they want to throw him in jail for the rest of life. If you're an American citizen, you need to be saying, no, he needs to be pardoned. He can come back. Here's why. Uh, Gizmodo, seven years later, court finally finds illegal NSA spying program have been illegal. So he was correct to whistleblow. And they still want him in jail because he made the government look bad. Now, here's the thing. A lot of you might say, um, oh, the NSA spy program was done under the Bush, the Republicans, the evil Republicans. Yeah, except, and yes, I'm aware of the, the fact that they were spying on a lot of Muslims that turned out to be a lot of dead ends and nothing and a waste of time and resources. The Democrats have been using the NSA programs to spy on political opponents. They did it to Trump, and recently they did it to uh Tucker Carlson, on Fox News, think whatever you want. This is inappropriate use of NSA. Quite frankly, I think the NSA needs to go to hell. Don't bomb my apartment, NSA. And they are just another alphabet agency that needs to go away. You do not need more agencies. You just need a more efficient FBI, NCIA, and that is it. And you will avoid all sorts of problems. If you want to hear uh, a good one, easy one, again, Snowden was on the Joe Rogan Experience, episode 1536, if you want to hear the story. And it should also terrify you that he was actually able to just to walk away with all that information because no one was actually paying attention to what he was doing, which is even more terrifying. Um, so to those of you who think, it could never happen in my country. It can, because they use creeping slowly process. Hey, we're just going to take a little freedom. We're just going to take a little freedom. We're just going to take a little freedom. We're going to do a little more freedom. We're going to do a little more, a little more, and slowly now it's gone, just like they're coming for me. It's a problem. Uh, you are losing your freedoms quicker than you realize, and you're going along with it because they're convincing you of things that are not true. Governments don't need more power. They need more efficiency. 
uh, I can't remember, uh, there's a world freedom organization of some kind that was basically saying all over the world we're losing our freedoms, in particularly during COVID. Now, if you're one of those people who is calling other people and reporting them, you are objectively in many ways, I know you think you're not, but it's no different than what people were doing in Maoist China, throwing the families under the bus, what people were doing in, uh, with the Stasi in East Germany, what people were doing in communist Stalinistic Russia. It wasn't warranted. If you felt fear from COVID, stay in your home. If you didn't go out, you were just now conditioned to be comfortable reporting your friends. And I've heard stories coming out of, say, Taiwan, where people are just happily reporting their friends to others for violating rules that make no sense at all and aren't even science-based. It's just a bunch of bullshit. Not saying COVID is bullshit. Again, I'm not saying that. The policies are not based in solid science a lot of the time. And a lot of governments are making silly decisions because you're yelling at them, which actually shows something. If a country is still a democracy, if you yell at them enough, they'll change their mind. The problem is the wrong people are yelling at them and the other side is being silent. And we saw this just creepy Karen-like behavior, reporting people and ratting people out and screwing people over and ruining people's lives that didn't actually hurt you. But you think it did because you were told to be fearful. See the power of fear. And your governments are spying on you. And if it's generally for good cause and they don't care and they don't do anything inappropriate, it's less of a big deal that you think. But it's a very quick slope for one type of leader to all of a sudden start spying on anyone they don't like because they have the authority as placed by the previous government. We're seeing this all over the world. You saw England go very 1984 with insane lockdowns that made no sense. You saw uh, claims that we're going to come into your house. Uh, you know, Biden in the U.S. is saying we're going to knock on your door and force you to get vaccinated, which I'm sorry, I've not seen enough evidence to suggest that it's necessary for everyone to get this vaccine. It's all fear so they can take more power, whether they're intending to or not. And the more you allow yourself to be surveilled on the internet, I use a VPN personally. It causes some hiccups sometimes, but I don't want to be tracked constantly. I don't give my information out unless I have to. I don't want the government to have more access to more information constantly. They claim it's for efficiency. It will not. The same reason, by the way, if you ask how many gay people are there and they say, we don't want you to know because those lists are going to use against us and they're not wrong. But the same goes for any asshole like uh, AOC in the States who is saying anyone who voted for Trump or supported Trump needs to go on a list. Wait, but you know, you support the LGBTQ community. They don't want to be on a list. Why don't they want to be on a list? And why is it okay for the other side, the Republicans, to be put on a list now? This is dangerous thinking, and it's going down a dangerous path. Anytime they're trying to surveil you more in the name of health and safety, you need to be very dubious. And people questioned it. The media questioned the crap out of it when Bush was doing it and yet is being absolutely silent on when Democrats do it in the States or in the Canada and when Trudeau was doing it and taking away your freedoms and acting like a fool with bad ideas, throwing childish tenter tantrums because nobody actually likes what he's saying. But he forces it on people's throats anyway, knowing that not enough for you give a shit enough to say, no, I am not going to do that. So if you think being surveilled is terrifying, like 1984 Big Brother, it's already starting to happen more and more, and you're just accepting it, 
in this, and they're using actually the methods from Elders Huxley's Brave New World through pleasure. Whenever anyone says, if you do what I want, you can get what you want, that is authoritarianism, plain and simple. So ask yourself, did you report on somebody in the last year or two that you thought you were doing your part? I'm just doing my part. I'm sorry, anyone who said that? It's f you believe in vaccines are 100% what you need to take by all means. But if you made a post, I know lots of people made a post saying, I got vaccinated, I'm doing my part. Go fuck yourself. I really mean that because you are an individual who may be meaning well but are playing right into the hands of authoritarianism. And I know you might be offended by saying that, but for the love of God or whatever it is you believe in, educate yourself. Blindly saying I'm doing my part is the path towards authoritarian brutality. Period. And posting that you got vaccinated is just virtue signaling. Hey guys, did I do it right? Am I doing it right yet? Or am I doing it right? Can we get back to normal? Hey, am I doing it right? It's sad to me that people did that and still think that that's somehow smart. Go get the vaccine if you want to and shut up about it. And everyone minds their own damn business. If the vaccine works, great. Then don't worry about unvaccinated people. It's just not how that works, guys. And we saw the surveillance state going through the roof. Certain protests were allowed if it suited the narrative and certain protests were not allowed because they were against the narrative all while having a, a supposedly super deadly virus running around that should have killed both mobs outright but did not don't believe things blindly and never allow yourself to be controlled like this which leads us into the next post by petra our resistance Doomed to repeat, growing up in East Germany, our resistance. This is part four, our resistance, of a five-part series titled Doomed to Repeat, Growing Up in East Germany, by Petra Forrester. Part one, our history. Part two, our education. Part three, our surveillance. When the wall fell in 1989, it didn't just happen overnight. Timing was crucial. As I wrote in the first part of this series, it felt bizarre to watch people climbing on top of the wall without being shot at. To give you some context, in the spring of 1968, the Czechoslovakian Communist Party under Alexander Dubik attempted change. They tried to implement a more democratic system and attempted to pull the country out of economic crisis. But the Soviet Union couldn't accept that. The economic system in the European socialist countries was a centralized command system in which prices, labor, direction, and resource distribution were defined by the government laws which created many problems. One of them was fluctuating output. Most of the time, whatever it was you needed was not available. The first thing that comes to mind was that we usually didn't have enough toilet paper. There was stretches when all we had was newspaper. And when there was toilet paper, it was very rough, like fine sandpaper. People used to joke that it was like that on purpose, so that everyone's ass really turned red. 
Another example is that my parents bought a car for me as soon as the doctor confirmed that my mom was pregnant. This was done so immediately in 1979, in the hope that I might have a car when I turned 18 in 1997. And people today are losing it when their Amazon order is one day late. Back to Prague Spring. Czechoslovakia was an economically very hard situation, and the people around Dubik tried to change that, but the Soviet Union was worried about the loss of control. It would set a bad example, and if Dubik had been successful with the decentralization attempt, not only economically, but also administratively, the SU tried unsuccessfully to negotiate, and they decided that they and other countries of the Warsaw Pact would mobilize their military forces and invade Czechoslovakia. They were met with resistance. Not military resistance, but civilian-based. The SU expected the uprising to be quelled within four days, and never imagined it would last for eight months. There were several protests, acts of civilian-based defense, and suicides by self-immolation. It took time for the Soviet Union to regain power and reverse the change made by Dubček. But they were reversed nevertheless. Dubček and his allies were taken to Moscow for trial, and he was expelled from his party. But prior to that, in June 1953, was the East German uprising. People came together to demonstrate against work quotas and the steadily growing control by the Soviets in East Berlin. They were nearly successful. If they hadn't been violently suppressed by the Soviet military and the Kasernierte Volksbezei, the Barricaded People Police, which later became the National People's Army, approximately 130 people were killed. One of the results was that the surveillance in the factories became more sophisticated to nip any suspicious actions of unrest in the bud. Other countries also tried to shake the control of the Soviets, notably Poland and Hungary in 1956. But without success, in most cases, it led to even stricter controls and surveillance by their respective secret service, who always reported back to Moscow. There was no freedom of speech. In 1989, the Soviet Union was not as powerful as it used to be, and the cracks were starting to show. Economically, the countries of the Warsaw Pact were unable to compete with the Western nations, and the national debt kept growing. Mikhail Gorbachev became the head of the Central Committee of the Communist Party in 1985, and he started to implement some changes with his twin policies of glasnost, openness and transparency, and perestroika restructuring. This led to the pan-European picnic, an open border between Hungary and Austria, at which point many citizens of the GDR took advantage of that, traveling to Hungary to apply for visas at West German embassies. Many of them were successful. Earlier in 1989, the so-called Montag Demonstrationen, Monday demonstrations started during which people peacefully protested the system by gathering in towns and city squares. Even though Eirik Milke, head of the Stasi, and Erik Honkur, the head of the state, tried to put a plan in action to have demonstrators arrested, some received death threats or were attacked. They were ignored, and shortly after that, Henneker was replaced by Egon Krenz. 
after Hungary and Czechoslovakia had opened their borders to the west, allowing East German citizens to cross safely, many people seized the opportunity and left the GDR government, couldn't do anything to prevent this from happening, and as a consequence, they resigned. And the GDR was run by Hans Modru. Finally, on November 9, 1989, Gunther Schabowski announced that East Germans were free to travel between East and West Germany, effective immediately. And then the wall came down. Written by Petra Forrester, UTKM Greenbelt. For training, visit online www.utkmu.com. If you're in the Metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. So inevitably, empires fall. Now, in some places, the Soviet unions, even after they fell, were, there were dictators in place that were still there, and it took a lot of internal resistance to bring them down, right? As, as uh, Petra was talking about in parts of this one, and how long it took to bring down these things. Now, also, um, economic sanctions against Russia... And the arms race ultimately caused them to economically collapse. I should say something about when you put embargoes on countries, it needs to be complete to cause the collapse. What you're seeing nowadays is sort of this half-assed, we're going to put restrictions on you, like say in Iran or uh, you know North Korea. Hey, we're going to put restrictions on you. Hey, we're not going to do this with you. Hey, you're not allowed to do this. Oh, but here's some money. Hey, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, you can't do this because you're bad, and blah, 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 but we're going to give you some money. And the idea behind that is we don't want the people to suffer, and that's good and sound, but guess what? Why are you giving them money? You're just helping them. You know, the whole like Israel conflict, either with Hezbollah or uh, Hamas, they stop shooting when they run out of money. And funnily enough, anytime they get large sums of money, they start shooting again funneled through Iran, when Iran got a bunch of money from the Biden administration, boom, Hamas has money again. Shocking how that works. If you want authoritarian regimes to collapse, you have to say no. Appeasement did not work against Hitler. Neville Chamberlain uh, said, oh no, I believe in good, you know, um, just paraphrasing, uh, I believe he's a good man, we'll sort it out, or whatever, that weak, spineless human being. And Hitler kept taking and kept taking and kept taking. This is what bullies do, whether it be right in front of your face or a country. China's doing it right now. No one's saying no to them enough. They're kind of saying no now, but not really. It's like, guys, stop. No, you're not going to invade another country. No, you're not taking over Taiwan. No, you're not doing this. And people will sit here and play these silly bugger games about treaties and all this stuff. Guess what? The time for that is over. Those treaties were ancient. We're in a different decade now. We're a different century. You do not get to run around bullying other people. And you can say, oh, well, the U.S. Yeah, U.S. is corrupt, heavily corrupt. I understand that. But just because one country does it doesn't mean another country doesn't. And sitting there and allowing people to commit genocide like China is with the Ungers. By the way, I can't ever go to China because <laughs> of this podcast. And everyone pretending like they're not committing genocide and taking a long time to call their bullshit out. We are not seeing enough resistance 
against authoritarianism in the right kinds of ways. We're seeing chaos. We're seeing misguided movements that are not achieving anything but breaking down structures with no plan to replace them. Resistances need to be to remove and prevent author authoritarianism from happening again or to bring them down. And if you get caught up in any movement, you need to make sure, are you educated? Do you really understand what the movement is about? Like the Black Lives Matter one again. They're a Marxist organization, plain and simple. But what you've been told is that they're just trying to help black people in America, which is a noble cause. A Marxist organization should not be doing that. They have no place to lead some revolution we don't want any kind of authoritarianism or anything that will lead to authoritarianism or any sort of ideas or concepts that will be mainstream that will lead to this. Again, you can think whatever you want. You can believe whatever you want. Go do it over there. Don't try to control my life. Maybe some of you will understand if we lose more and more freedoms. Uh, where I'm in Canada, it's slowly going that way unfortunately, because not enough Canadians are educated on what our politicians are doing and not enough are educated on the truth. They just jump on these social media bandwagon ideas and concepts because they feel good. And we're going to find ourselves in a position where it's not going to be pretty. So now is the time in North America, at least, and Western countries to say no to this nonsense that's leading down this path that we should have learned our lesson from. Try not to be violent. Definitely do not. Be, I'm not advocating for that. But history says eventually if you're oppressed enough, it will happen. It's very unfortunate. My philosophy is hope for the best, prepare for the worst, but know that if things keep going down this road, it could be dicey and there could be, quote, resistances. One way or the other. I'm not really sure. The whole purpose of this podcast was to look at history and look at, compare it to today and see if you can think and feel any similarities. And then you should be a little concerned. Write your politicians, say, I'm not okay with this. Tell your friends, I'm not okay with this. I want to have my freedoms. I want you to have your freedoms too. It's important. So that leaves the last one. Doomed to repeat our future. Doomed to repeat, growing up in East Germany, our future. This is part five, our future, of a five-part series titled Doomed to Repeat, Growing Up in East Germany by Petra Forrester. Part one, our history. Part two, our education. Part three, our surveillance. Part four, our resistance. This is usually where fairy tales end, with, and they lived happily ever after. It was not that easy for us. There was a period of transition. It took time and a lot of negotiations around what was to happen next. East and West Germany became simply Germany once again, but there was a big economic difference between the two parts. The infrastructure in East Germany had been neglected. Roads, bridges, and buildings were not in good condition. Many of our factories couldn't compete with West German factories. They were unable to sustain themselves without financial support from the government. 
the Trunhanstalt Trust Agency was established and they were supposed to restructure and or sell the East German state-owned companies. There were companies and factories that would have been able to survive and could have been turned into a profitable business, but they were still closed down. After the initial happiness about the reunification, East Germany was in for a rough, tough awakening. You have to understand, those people have lived most of their lives in a system in which the government had control of everything. You didn't have to worry about health insurance or a pension as you had been provided for by the government. Old age poverty was an unknown term, and unemployment rates were incredibly low due to the hidden unemployment, but that's a different topic. Now suddenly, everything had changed and many people felt like being thrown into a deep end before never learning to swim. It is one thing to request change, but being subjected to it at the fast forward rate took many by surprise. After the initial joy, many people felt taken advantage of and neglected, and they felt no one really cared about them, and there are areas in East Germany that still feel that way. Understandably, they have become very wary of the government. Of course, people learned to adapt and to survive, but they didn't expect the changes to affect them as hard as it did. Most shocking was that the East German currency, Ostmark, had to be converted into West money, which was difficult since the value of the Ostmark was not close to being the same. In the end, they decided that two Ostmark equal one Westmark or Deutschmark, which meant that what money some were able to put aside over the years was immediately cut in half, while living costs increased. To bridge the gap between East and West, and to have financial means available to support East Germany, the German government created the Solidarity Tax in 1991. By the way, everyone has to pay it based on income not just the people in West Germany. Originally, it was supposed to be raised for one year only, yet it still exists even now, more than 30 years later. People in East Germany naturally were unable to contribute to the same level as West Germans to the pensions fund. Regardless of the fact that they had worked all their lives to receive smaller pensions, East German women who had worked over 40 years, received smaller pensions than women in West Germany, who had worked less. There is, of course, an explanation for that, but it is a bitter pill to swallow after working often physically hard labor throughout the 40 years. There are still many after-effects that cannot be explained away. One of them is that I and many of my family f members are distrustful of authorities and law enforcement. We also don't trust the media. When talking about politics, I learned early on, be very careful what you say and to whom you say it. It led me to avoid wanting to talk about politics. I was still interested, and I envied my classmate who would openly discuss politics in school after reunification, many of whom were very opinionated. I always felt scared to say something, to say the wrong things. I still struggle with that, and I tend to choose my wording carefully. Right now, when I follow social media and traditional media, this flares up again. I've noticed that if you don't follow the predominantly accepted opinion, 
There are keyboard warriors out there ready and willing to take you down. The internet made it so much easier too, because they can hide behind their screens and don't have the fear of any social or physical repercussions. And so they relentlessly destroy people they don't agree with. An open discourse seems impossible these days. Most people are only interested in presenting their side, their facts, but have forgotten how to listen and how to respond in a civilized manner. You don't need a PhD to have good manners and respect the other person's opinions and experiences. People are so hung up on shoving their own opinion down other people's throats that they don't see anything else. They have a kind of tunnel vision focused on winning every conversation. Even if you ask questions to get a better understanding of the other person, it can escalate quickly because people nowadays are so fast to declare they feel offended. In German, we are known for not being very diplomatic to begin with. English is my second language and I make mistakes. That happens when you learn another language. That being said, being ESL, English as a second language, is not an excuse to offend people. But for God's sake, relax and help us ESL people to find better wording. In most Western countries, we do have freedom of speech. We don't have to live in fear of our government arresting us for making a mean joke about the head of state. And still, we have become so careful about what to say, and it reminds me so much, too much, of the climate during the Cold War in socialist countries during my youth. It seems to me, journalism, the objective reporting of events, barely exists anymore. Ever since it switched from paper to online, the media is desperately trying to generate clicks, foot traffic for the websites by offering lurid headlines to tempt people into clicking. Many reports are often one-sided, depending on the demographics they were designed to cater to. When I read the news, I have to read different sources just to see where there are points in common in order to get a picture of what is actually happening. I also noticed a certain careful language being used. If you don't understand why language is important, it is the pattern in which you think. I don't know about you. But the voices in my head usually argue in German and or English. Language is how we express our thoughts. That's why it is so important. Once language is being regulated, it is, by extension, also regulates the way we think. When I was a child, it was similar. Language was used to create a positive or negative association with certain events, objects, or persons. I miss having an open dialogue without having to worry about how I am perceived and if I am being judged. Progress can only be achieved with an open and constructive dialogue. It is okay to disagree with a person, but stay respectful about it. Usually, there is a reason why and how a person came to their opinion, and that should be acknowledged, maybe even explored. We often think, we own the ultimate truth. But that is nonsense. We are humans, and our perceptions of the world around us is very subjective and very flawed. You can ask any police officer about the unreliability of witness descriptions regarding suspects. 
how suspects and events are described versus what the suspects actually looked like and what really took place. When we look back at 2020, we can say objectively it was a bad year. I specifically think of reports about police brutality. I'm not saying there is no police brutality. I agree that it is a terrible thing for people with power to abuse power, but I noticed headlines like, Innocent Man Shot by Police, and everyone was in an uproar and mad at law enforcement officers. Then a couple of days later, when the body footage was available, we see videos of a person armed with a knife charging at a police officer whose only chance to survive was to shoot their attacker. I think what I'm trying to say is don't jump to conclusions. Wait for more information to be available to have a better idea of what has actually happened. I like living in Canada. It is a very open country. I have a job I like, I found a martial arts community, and met many awesome people. It would be great if it could stay that way. I don't want to go back to feeling limited and restricted in my thoughts and speech. It took me long enough to break out of that pattern. Written by Petra Forrester, UTKM Greenville. For training online, visit www.utkmu.com. If you are in Metro Vancouver area, come learn with us in person. Sign up at www.urbantacticskm.com. Okay. What does your future look like? That's a question you need to ask, and often one that people are terrified because it causes the dreaded existential crisis that a lot of people don't want to handle. That's why a lot of people prefer to be told what to do, but guess what? Some of us don't. We want to be left alone. So what future do you want for your children? And if you say, I don't want to have children because the world is horrible, that's not true. The world is better than it's ever been. However, we're in a very weird transitionary phase as a species, as our technology grows, and a lot of working class are now obsolete as far as well, there's nothing for them to do. People don't have purpose anymore. If you want to understand purpose in the Holocaust, read uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meeting. There is not an, uh, an elite intellectual on this planet who does not recommend that book. You need to read that book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He was a psychologist who survived the Holocaust. And he survived because he found meaning in the horror. If you don't find meaning in life, life will be nothing but a horror, essentially. That's what we're seeing now. Nobody has purpose anymore. So find your purpose, whatever it means. Uh, and again, Petra summed this up really well when the Eastern Bloc collapsed. And she said at the beginning here, this is usually where fairy tales end with and they lived happily ever after. And it never is like that. Things are not black and white. That's a theme of, I think... What I would like to uh, help people understand, stop making things black and white dichotomy. There are some things that are, but a lot of things and most things are not. They're complicated and nuanced. There is often no happily ever after. Anyone who thinks, watches Disney and thinks that's how a relationship is, for example. Yeah, let's, let's do a series where we follow the princesses after the fact. Let's see how that goes. This is happily ever after is, and now we got to do the hard work of rebuilding. If you allow authoritarians to take over and it collapses, which they always will eventually, whether it's 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, even 300 years, seems to be the max for any empire. Now you have a whole bunch of people who need to rebuild. 
and what it depends how quickly you can rebuild, rebuild based on what knowledge is left. Right? I often wonder with regards to China, what would Chinese culture be like if Mao never happened? Because the Chinese culture today, you have to remember, there was entire generations of those who understood the culture of old, traditional Chinese culture from the old days, gone. And so the culture we have now is not exactly what traditional Chinese culture probably would have looked like without Mao. Or Stalin, what would Russian culture look like? Or even before the Russian Revolution hadn't happened, what would it have looked like? The people would behave very differently. They'd think very differently. It takes a long time to come out of that kind of oppression and rebuild. And, and in Canada, people are having the discussion about the whole native stuff, which is fine. Again, education, you need guys, education, be better, take care of yourselves. That'll apply to any group of people, by the way. They're saying how tough it is to rebuild. Well, guess what? If we allow ourselves to be taken over authoritarian and be told what to do, how to think, how to teach, just like you're saying, we shouldn't have done it to the natives. I agree, we shouldn't have. That's no different than you now taking over society and saying, you have to think like this, you have to act like this, you must believe this, or else. Or else we're going to surveil you, we're going to throw you in jail, we're going to re-educate you. There is no point in history where this is acceptable, whether it be the native uh, education in Canada, where they were re-educating them in a bad way to eliminate their natural culture, or whether it would be Stalinistic gulag education camps or North Korean re-education or Maoist re-education. This is not okay. And you can say it'll never happen again, but we're letting it happen again. And I would like to have an optimistic, happy future. And again, I prepare for the hope for the best, prepare for the worst. You, you just don't know. This is why they say, historians often say, history doesn't repeat itself. Stop saying that. Well, it literally can't because the people are different, etc. Unless you get into the whole like Loki time uh, branch split multiverse thing. It gets complicated. But we can't allow it to happen again. We have to be optimistic, but we have to make sure, stay vigilant in making sure this kind of nonsense doesn't happen. Now, I'm glad there are certain places in the Western world that are saying no to authoritarian behavior. Now, sometimes they're going too far the other way, but authoritarian behavior, whether it be communist, socialist, capitalist, uh, fascist, is, is bad. Call it whatever you want. Authoritarianism is bad. The I'm in charge, do what I say, don't defy me, I know best. No, you don't. It will always lead to disaster. It will lead to the destruction of people, property, and potentially even the species. So, are we doomed to repeat the failures of history? Or have we learned enough not to prevent them from happening again? One thing's for sure, we need to stop electing leaders that only want to win. And only want to listen to their ideas. If we can stop doing that and start saying no to authoritarian behavior and don't let them take it the way of freedoms, I'm very optimistic. But if we continue to allow people like Trudeau in Canada or others to just take away more and more freedom because that's how we get order and safety, 
Don't be shocked if in the next hundred years we see more gulags, more work camps, more death. And that's not a future that I would be optimistic for. So are we doomed to repeat? I'm not sure. But I hope that this series written by Petra and me adding in some more context has given you something to think about. And and I want you to go back if, and listen to the recommendations. If you have time, and you know, reading all those books, it's a lot of time. Though the Orwell books are short. Huxley's book is short. And the Yunmi Park, that's happening now, North Korea interview. And I forgot what else I said. And just really educate yourself on this matter. Listen to people's ideas that you don't like. Get perspective. The more open-minded you are, more perspective you have the less likely we are going to go down to a dark path but the more you keep your head in the ground and pretend i don't want to listen i don't have busy i'm too busy my life is everything is fine i don't want to listen to politics i don't want to listen to history it's boring it's boring it's blah, blah 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 don't be shocked if it repeats itself i hope that this was a useful podcast for you that is dense material as some of these are but it's all so that we can prevent a future that mimics the past. Thank you for listening. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. The Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions.